0: Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. My guest today is Amanda Blake. She is a master somatic leadership coach and author of the award-winning book, Your Body is Your Brain, founded uh, Embrite to help influencers and idealists expand their leadership capacity and make a more satisfying and meaningful contribution. Thank you for being here, Amanda. I really look forward to our conversation today.
1: Well, likewise, and thank you for inviting me.
0: So we're living in some very surreal times, and I wanted to focus our conversation today about leading in these disruptive times. And what can our body tell us about how to lead more effectively in these times? So my first question, Amanda, is about uh, embodied practice, and what can it do to impact our neurobiology During times of of threat, we are often finding ourselves in situations that are very threatening and ambiguous for us. So give us your thoughts about what is somatic practice, maybe start there, and then how do we get connected with our body?
1: Yeah. Somatic practice or the, I I typically use the term embodied practice, but that can mean so many different things. So it makes sense to kind of define our terms at the outset. And really what I'm talking about there is a whole self practice that includes your, not only your physical self. So it's not just like working out, but it also includes your thinking self and your heart and emotional self. And even for those of us who are inclined in this direction, a spiritual uh, sense of connectedness or vision or whatever has meaning for you there. So some sense of all of what makes us human physically, mentally, emotionally, and in terms of how we make meaning in our lives. And that kind of very holistic practice that includes the body has the potential to shift our state of being. Right. More so than just trying to think our way out of difficulties or convince ourselves or that we can cope or whatever it may be. And one of the things that I think is really valuable about using our physical selves as a starting point is that it gives us something very tangible that we can do something very tangible and actionable. And when we can shift our physiology, we have the potential for the rest of us to come along. So we know, you know th- that stress is a physiological reaction to events in our lives and follows by definition, resilience to stress is also physiological. So how do we um, enter into practices that cultivate a state of being that is more resilient to stress? I think that's what we can um, talk about here today and give people some things that they can tangibly do.
0: Yeah, that's great. And when you talk about you shift your state of being, um, I'd love to hear the distinction between shifting your state of being versus shifting your thinking. And because I think one of the things that um, in a lot of times in my coaching work with my clients most people get stuck in a certain place um, with a certain perspective or a certain mindset. um, And they don't, then then the solutions that occur to them are very different than if their state of being is shifted. I would love for you to draw that distinction.
1: When you are able to shift from like, I'm resistant to situation X or I have a negative attitude about it to, I'm really thinking about this situation and seeing it differently now. That can be very powerful. It can totally change our actions and as you say, help us respond totally differently and have totally different set of ideas in response to a challenge. Um, But what happens too often, I think, is that people will try to shift their mindset. They'll talk themselves into the silver lining, for example, and, and then like a New Year's resolution that was a good idea, but by January 2nd has gone out the window, <laughs> it's hard to enact. So when it's only an idea, when it stays at the level of like, I'm going to have a better attitude about this because I can see the silver lining or I can shift my thinking here to, to opportunity and possibility rather than uh, resistance and, and threat, for example. What sometimes happens is that if we don't bring our bodies along with that, then we've got the idea, silver lining, silver lining, silver lining, and meanwhile, under the surface and below our skin, we still have whatever it is, the fast beating heart or the sweaty palms or the butterflies in our gut or the clenched stomach or the tight jaw or the furrowed brow that actually affects our outlook on the world. And we don't think of those things as actually affecting our outlook and our behavior, but they absolutely do.
0: Where I think would be really useful for the listeners is to understand, kind of start by understanding, how do they know when they are in a threat state? so that, you know, we know that we react, as you said, very differently depending on the state of being that we're in. If we are in a threat state versus feeling in a very safe place, we can be very creative, we can be more curious, we can be more collaborative with others. And so how do we, let's first kind of start with diagnosing me as a leader. How do I know that I'm in a threat state? Because so many of us live with chronic stress.
1: Yeah, there are always physical flags, physical cues, and it's really helpful to pay attention and to learn what your unique physical cues are because it won't be the same for everyone, right? Like, I'm so agitated, I'm having heart palpitations, you know, So, and we can't ignore it. So um, sometimes it'll be invisible to us and hard to make the connection, and sometimes it'll be really, really obvious, but what's important is to pay attention inside your own skin and look for look for cues physical cues very typically not always but very typically these will happen viscerally so somewhere heart gut and lungs you'll notice some uh, disruption and it could be a speeding up and it could also be a slowing down or you'll notice in ter- in terms of some kind of muscular tension usually an unconsciously held muscular tension that you won't even notice until maybe the end of the day when when you finally get to put it down, if Mm -hmm. you even do. So I think that paying attention to both a sense of hyper arousal, meaning we feel jacked up, agitated, and um, things are maybe moving fast inside. And physically, we feel like things are moving really fast or hypo arousal, where we may feel lethargic, tired, exhausted, perhaps tensed against or contracted against the the world or the situation that you're in. And looking in those two domains, where might I be hyper aroused or where might I be hypo aroused? Those are really important places to look. And we tend to overlook the latter all the time. We, we think overlook. we, we tend to overlook hype hypo arousal. We, we think that our only response to stress is fight flight because that gets so much airtime, but there's also an immobilization thre- threat response that has us freeze and, uh, slow everything down. Like the possum playing dead, right? And that is also part of our neurobiological makeup. And it can be a really important signal that we're, uh, uh, the pressure that we're under.
0: And so, Amanda, would you talk about then how we get ourselves outside? How do we use our bodies to get out
1: and un- from under the
0: threat that we're feeling? Yeah. I
1: what mean, are I some th-
0: practices?
1: I think one thing to recognize, and especially, you know, we're in this A worldwide situation that is likely to go on for some time to come. And so we have to recognize that we're in the middle of it. So, having touch points or practices that can just return us to a sense of equilibrium or kind of a a more steady baseline from a place of being hyper or hypo aroused is really useful. Um, So, one thing that works really well for both. Of those states, a hyper and a hypo aroused state, is to do something called the ha breath. And, and that is just a very forceful breath. You would go through it 5, 10, 15 times, take a break, go through it another 5, 10, 15 times. And I'll demonstrate it in a moment. But what I really like about this practice is that um, it, is, it is both um, enlivening which is really helpful if you're in more of an immobilization response to threat. And it's also um, energy dissipating, which is really helpful when you have all of this like frantic sense inside of you that can sometimes happen in a hyper aroused state. So it's really good for for both of those situations. And, And it goes like this. What what you would do is whether you're sitting or standing, put your hands on your knees and be ready to kind of lean in or move forward or um, let your chest drop as you make a loud sound. And what makes this work is expelling the breath all the way from the bottom of your pelvic bowl all the way up through. So really expelling your breath very forcefully all the way from the your very low belly, the bottom of your pelvic bowl, all the way up through your lungs and out. So you want to think of your breath as moving from the base of your torso and let your breath resonate through your whole torso. So you're not just starting at your collarbones and breathing out, ha, huh, ha, huh, like that. And the sound is going to be loud. So I would Advise listeners might be a good moment to turn down the sound. <laughs> this is what it would sound like. Practice, guys. Yes. It's right? <laughs> let's so do it. So here's what it would sound like if you were going to really give it a, um, a good shot. Huh. Right? It's like a big cough, it's like a okay. big exhale. Right? And then if you do that repeatedly, let's say 10 times, huh. Huh. I'm doing it quieter now, so I don't break yeah. the ears right, but huh, huh, huh and and really like from your low belly below your belly button, expelling that air, take a breath in between, take a few really deep inhales, and then maybe do it again another five or ten or fifteen times until you feel like you have expelled the agitated energy if you're in a state of hyper arousal and and or or enlivened yourself if you're in a state of hypo arousal and and this is just a really useful tool for intervening in the autonomic nervous system it's the part of our nervous system that is responsible for both fight flight and our rest and digest system which plays a role in that immobilization response to um To threat. Because the breath is under voluntary control, but it's also under this automatic control through the autonomic nervous system, when we make changes to our breath, we can can really shift our internal state very rapidly. So this is a simple way to do that.
0: We want to build capacity Mm -hmm. for ourselves to have a much more resilient nervous
1: system. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so this is, I I do like to draw the distinction between an intervention and a practice, right? So this can be used as an intervention. You're in a moment of high stress and you need to shut yourself off in your bedroom or in your office if you're going into the office or go to your car where you can be alone and make noise without people freaking out (laughs) and give yourself the gift of just expelling your breath really loudly like this. That kind of intervention doesn't help you do it differently the next time. What will help you do it differently the next time is building capacity through practice. So for example, if you were to take this and uh, do it two or three times a day for three months, you would change your capacity to uh, be in high pressure situations. And I'll share one other example of something that you can practice that doesn't require any um, sound or doesn't require you to interrupt anyone else. This is great if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're stressed out or whatever it might be, Um, is to stretch your face. And you can start uh, by just stretching your jaw and sticking your tongue out, but then you also want to like get your cheeks and your nose into it. And as you're listening, Uh, You can try this on, just like squinching up tight all the muscles of your face, your eyes, your eyelids, your eyebrows, and then kind of moving your jaw and your nose around. For those of you who can move your ears and your scalp, do that too. Maybe stick your tongue out. And as you're doing all this, be sure that you're breathing. A lot of people stop breathing when they do this. But um, take deep breaths as you Tighten deliberately and then stretch and move your face, eyes up, down, right, left, maybe circling your eyes a little bit. And then don't do that in
0: your meeting with your boss,
1: right? Yeah, probably you not, while <laughs> <laughs> not while you're right? on Zoom. While on Zoom, not while you're on Although I will say there's like dozens of recordings of me making weird faces out there in the world because I've done this so many times <laughs> on Zoom. Um, but, but can just, you explain the science
0: around this and, yeah. and the raw breath as well as the you know, moving your face? Why so does, all, how, does this shift, how does this shift us?
1: Yeah, so, so let me say two things before I answer that question. I think that's a useful question. The one thing I want to say is um, as you stop stretching your face, it's great to just give a, a good deep exhale, and you'll probably be inclined to do that anyway. And you can do this for just 30 seconds or a minute like an intervention, right? Or again, this can become like a, a very regular practice that you do multiple times a day. And it will start to build capacity and the capacity to deal with stressful situations differently. And the reason that it does is like the lungs, the neuromusculature of the face is very closely tied into the parts of our autonomic nervous system that regulate our response to uh, threat and perceived threat and so we very automatically make faces in response to perceived threat we don't know we're doing it we don't do it on purpose but it's why after a hard day at work you might go home with your jaw tight or you might take your glasses off and rub your eyes because all day our faces are responding to um, pressure and threat and part of the evolutionary biologists think that part of the reason for that is that we are such social creatures and so much of our interaction is based on communicating with one another um, through facial expression. And even long before we had vocalizations available to us or or language specifically available to us, we were communicating through facial expressions. So um, it's one of the ways that that we um, both express stress and um, it's also one of the ways that we can handle and manage stress. And so as you stretch your face, and take, you know, take deep breaths as you do and exhale when you're finished, part of what you're doing is shifting your autonomic nervous system response out of a a response that is a threat response and into a response that is uh, more relaxed and ready to deal with the threat. Um, And so I don't want to make this distinction as some people do uh, between a sympathetic nervous system state, which is often considered to be not so good, right? So our sympathetic nervous system plays a role in the fight flight part of our response. And it's really useful. We don't wanna lose our fight flight response at all. It's just that it gets a little overactivated sometimes. And a parasympathetic state, which is our rest and digest state, also really useful. We don't wanna lose that. But both of those systems respond in situations of safety and in situations of danger. So in situations of danger, fight, flight, in situations of safety, our sympathetic nervous system is critical to, for example, playing sports, right? We need that activation to get going in situations of um, uh, where we perceive low threat, but we want to be very active. And the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest, where we perceive low threat, we can rest and digest, but where we perceive high threat, we will freeze and immobilize. And that part of our nervous system is activated. So it's not as though there's there's a good part of us and a bad part of us. It's really that um, we wanna leverage our whole capacity, including our physiological capacity to respond effectively to the pressures and threats of our lives and this is true on an everyday basis you know never more so than than now in the middle of this pandemic so
0: can you talk a little bit about if there are any scientific studies that taught that help us understand that working with the body and the autonomic nervous system is potentially more effective than just
1: working with the mind? Yeah, there are hundreds if not thousands that all point to this idea that our embodied intelligence has something to offer us not only in terms of resilience but in terms of um, how we communicate with other people, uh, how we show up at our best, how we lead, how we inspire others. How we can be most present and connected with others. Do you have any
0: advice for leaders to find a embodied presence, perhaps, mm-hmm. that helps them shift into their best selves during times of crisis? Because yeah. it's clear to me that you know we need to keep coming back. You know, as life throws these things at us, we have to keep coming back to you know, finding an embodied presence that really is vital for how we show up for our people.
1: Yes. I mean, I just want to endorse and underline and highlight what you just said, which is when you're in a leadership position, it's it's incumbent upon you, upon us as as human beings to be at our best to give our best and to be in service to those who we are there to support. And so, finding that in times of crisis can be so challenging. There, I'm going to give you one really simple uh, embodied practice that I can share on the podcast, and I'm going to point you to a free resource on my website that would help you take it deeper if you're if you're interested in doing that. So. Um, a really simple thing you can do is to make sure that your hips are properly underneath you so um, if you are listening right now and you want to play along um, just uh, wherever you're sitting or standing tilt your hips back so that you've got an arch in your low back and then and then try tucking your tucking your tail under like a scared puppy dog, and then go back and forth a few times until you find a, a center point, right, where, where your um, pelvic floor is level with the ground, right? And, and you may want to do the same thing side to side. So getting your hips really underneath you, um, part of what this does is it allows your spine to be straight. That affects your entire central nervous system, spine and, and brain. Um, the other thing is that when your hips are in a positioned properly underneath you, um, you are activating that parasympathetic nervous system. Most of the parasympathetic nerves come off of the um, kind of the low back uh, part of your spine as well as your neck. And so um, getting your hips underneath you can really can actually just help you relax a little bit. Um, And then in addition to that, what I would say is get your hips underneath you and then connect to something that you really care about. And particularly uh, if you can, uh, something that's related to the leadership position that you're in. So... um, You know, if you are a healthcare worker who is uh, there, went into healthcare service because you deeply want to help heal people, connect to that. If you are um, a parent who loves and is frustrated by the challenge, (laughs) loves your children and is frustrated by the challenges of homeschooling, um, connect to your desire for your your child's quality education, right? So whatever it may be, um, find a way to connect to what you care about, even if it's not relevant to the situation at hand, right? So if you um, make widgets and wish you had another job, connect to the fact that there are people with you making widgets and that uh, and, and, and that you want, want good things for your team. And for those individuals and with your hips underneath you and connected to care, we're just so much better equipped to lead. Yeah. I love what you just said about
0: connected to care and connected to yourself. And um, it reminds me of just staying present to purpose, wherever it is that you're planted. Yeah. So I so thank um, your, um, passion for the work that you're doing, uh, Amanda, and for helping leaders really find um, their most uh, bright selves um, as they do their work um, and stay connected to both their bodies and their purpose. So thank you so much. Is there uh, a point, like if people want to know more about your work, where can they find you and um, where should we direct them?
1: Uh, and i did make a promise about that free resource so let me let me share that too um you can find that on the mbright website and it's mbright e m b r i g h t dot .org mbright.org and you will find there the stress to serenity guide which is um, takes you through a series of audios and a very physical centering Practice or I should say psychophysiological centering practice that uh, helps you center your whole self, and then I would direct people to my book, Your body is your brain. It's a great place to start or further your learning about these things, and there are a lot of actionable suggestions in those pages as well.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Amanda. It's been a pleasure reconnecting with you after all these years and I wish you well, and I will definitely be downloading From Stress to Serenity and practicing some of those practices. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anand. Please rate, comment, and share our podcasts with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption you can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends.